Well, this week, some of you will go to work. You're working for the promise of a wage. On Friday, you'll receive pay. This year, some of you will be recognized. Some special accomplishment, some outstanding service, you will receive recognition. This summer, some have competed. Taking the field Monday in and Monday out, you battled in our church softball league. You will receive a participation award. (laughs) To be fair, no team wins at all in the first season. My Phillies went 17 and 81 in their first season in Philadelphia. But take away all of this. Take away the pay that is due. Take away the recognition that is earned. Take away the award won. If nothing is owed and nothing is merited, that is every person before God. And what remains is the perfect opportunity for grace. You see, the Lord God is a God of grace. Our lives are are living illustrations of this, if you know him. You and I bring nothing to the table, and God gives us grace. Well, this morning we see this in the life of Jacob, and we return to Genesis, Genesis chapter 29. We pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We're studying God through the lives of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Well, last time we learned of this word grace. It's God's unmerited favor that he grants to people. And we learned in the life of Jacob of his sovereign grace, that he has authority to freely choose whoever he wishes, to set his love upon them. We learned of God's abiding grace, that God's grace remains upon all he sets his grace on. His grace never departs our lives. Well, this morning we continue that discussion. I want you to see that that grace isn't just some element of salvation. Perhaps it's not just grace when you received salvation, but grace flows through the believer's life. It remains with us. It transforms us. And there are real-life applications for who we are and who we become. Well, I want to begin first with God's reforming grace, God's reforming grace. And this goes across to Genesis 29, even through chapter 32. It spans all of those chapters. And in those chapters, God uses Laban to reform Jacob. Now, Laban is the uncle of Jacob, and Jacob is a lot like Laban. Laban's a lot like Jacob, and that can sting. Now, last time, it was two weeks ago, Jacob set off to find a wife. And in part, he did this to avoid Esau, his brother. He did it to save his own hide, but he also did it to find a wife among his father's people. Well, he reached his destination And like his father Isaac, a local well became a love connection. You recall Isaac found 
Rebecca there. Isaac married Rebecca. Jacob would marry Rachel. In chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, we meet this unusual bachelor. There's a massive stone covering the, the well where flocks grazed. The text says it took multiple men to move this stone. Well, along comes Jacob. And in verse 10, in front of Rachel, he moves the stone. Right away, in verse 11, he then proceeds to kiss Rachel and then begins weeping. I call that an unusual first date, to say the least. Some believe he's just overwhelmed by God's providence, how God has directed him and provided at this point. The text is silent. But nevertheless, Laban welcomes him, and he welcomes him warmly. Again, he was the uncle of Jacob. He's the brother of Rebekah. In verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? He's trying to work out some kind of arrangement for the employment of Jacob. But Jacob, he doesn't want money. He wants marriage. Verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. In verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. That's quite a commitment, seven years. In this time, a betrothal gift would have been the custom, but Jacob brought none, so his labor was what he had to offer. And he gave himself, essentially, to work seven years. Eventually, Laban the uncle would become Laban the father-in-law. And the time had come, and the day had arrived, and Jacob went into Leah, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Here's Jacob, the master of disguise. He used the darkness of his father's eyesight to steal. And here's Jacob, the master of deceit, who used to feast to cheat. Laban deceives Jacob because he knows how Jacob feels about Rachel. And he capitalizes on that love. He does this for labor and for profit. I told you they're a lot alike. After seven more years of work, Rachel becomes his wife. Now, I want you to understand that God's grace is at work. God is working through this situation, through seven years, through 14 years, to mold and reform Jacob into the man he wants. We see that as an example in chapter 30. Jacob's family grows. It's no accident that this is included in the narrative of Jacob, because it's an anchor or a marker to remind us that God is gracious and God provides And we know that he's a promise-keeping God who's keeping his covenant that he made with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Children, big families, it was a sign of God's blessing in the ancient Near East. But in chapter 30, verse 25, Jacob's ready to go home. He seeks a home going. Laban sees God's blessing. He knows that God's blessing Jacob. And boy, would he hate to miss out on it. Proverbs 19.4, wealth adds many friends. 
And what follows then is Jacob's attempt to get out from under the thumb of Laban. Seems like a contest to see who can outwit the other. Laban wants Jacob to stay. Jacob is the moneymaker. Stay with me, he says. I've divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. You see, Jacob or Laban's wealth came from Jacob's labor. And he goes on, name your wages and I will give it. Jacob makes a proposition back. There will be no wages. If you do this one thing for me, if you let me go, if you release me, I will pasture your flock and I will keep your flock. Give me your speckled and your spotted and your black sheep and your goats. Now he does this because these are abnormal animals. They're uncommon. Most of the animals of Laban's flock would have been one color. And what this does for Jacob is it keeps him above board on this deal he's making. That is to say that any one-color animals that he would have would be considered stolen. Not to be outwitted, Laban in verse 35, that same day, he removes all the speckled and spotted and black sheep and goats. He wastes no time in adjusting the scales in his favor. Three days' journey separates them. They're way over the hill, way over the border. I mean, with friends like this, who needs enemies? But Jacob had too much experience to be deterred from this, and he had too big a God. He kept his word. He pastured Laban's flock. And verses 37 to 43 record a peculiar breeding plan. And he takes wooden rods, and he sets them up to breed the animals. Now, this is an unusual custom, and I could not find any science behind it. We know that God is behind it. God's blessing Jacob. In the next chapter, in fact, Jacob will credit God for what he does here. Jacob is breeding the animals, and Jacob is keeping the strong ones and giving Laban the weak ones. In verse 43 of chapter 30, Jacob became exceedingly prosperous. He had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Again, the grace of God is evident in the life of Jacob. Even through this hardship, these undesirable circumstances, God is giving grace. And then God is giving him the nudge, or maybe the boot. In chapter 31, Jacob sneaks away. And two events bring about this move. In verses 1 and 2, chapter 30, we would call it his host family. They grow unfriendly towards Jacob. You see, Laban had sons, and they saw Jacob's wealth, and they believed that Jacob was stealing what was theirs, what belonged to their father. Perhaps it might be envy for his success. And what's worse is Laban's face. Verse 2, literally, it's the face of Laban. It was not friendly. You've all received that look. Perhaps you've given it. But the bigger event here is verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Clearly, it is time to go home. And Jacob and Leah and Rachel, they all meet. Note verse 14. Not only does Jacob feel cheated, but so do his wives. 
Are we not reckoned by Laban as foreigners, they ask? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed, or the word might be devoured, our purchase price. You know Laban by now, he's never met wealth he couldn't spend. A dowry would have been paid for their hand in marriage, but it was not his to spend, not entirely. So they too feel cheated by Laban. And Jacob didn't need to convince his wives. They too were ready to go. Verse 19, when Laban had gone to shear the flock, then Rachel stole the household items that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had. And he arose and crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. That gives Jacob a two-day lead. And that's what makes what appears in the rearview mirror so surprising. It was Laban pursuing Jacob. And we can only guess his intent. We might get a taste of it from verse 24. It's a warning by God in a dream of Laban. Be careful that you do not speak to Laban, either good or bad. And the next day, Laban and Jacob meet one final time. And they had what we might call a heated exchange. Laban fires his barrage. What have you done by deceiving me? Why did you flee secretly? Why did you not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters? Why did you steal my goods? Remember, Rachel took those. Jacob had no idea. And then as Laban rifles through Jacob's tent, looking for these gods, and then he goes through Rachel's tent and Leah's tent, can you imagine how angry Jacob must have become? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Twenty years I have been with you. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. Twenty years I have been in your house. You changed my wages ten times. Jacob is livid. And he concludes, if the God of my father had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, and we might say, God gave grace. What is God doing? Why this way? Remember that God had made a covenant with Abraham. He promised him land and seed and blessing. And he kept his covenant with his son, Isaac. And now, God works through Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. And he is working with Jacob through the man that he is and through the deeds that he does. You see, God's grace is a reforming grace. It is a grace that changes us. And that is to say that he takes you and he takes all of you and reforms you and changes you. He takes your quirks. He takes your foibles. He takes your insecurities. God takes your oddities and your anxieties and your gifts. And God takes your hidden faults and your obvious failures. He takes all of you and changes you. Now, rarely does God do this in one moment. But rather, through the remaining years of our life, God is fashioning us. And he's reforming us to be like Christ.
He may do it a little different with each of us. Perhaps you found yourself observing another or asking, why aren't they further along? Why can't they just change? Or maybe out of envy, we've seen others very godly and very holy. God's working on a certain timetable. It's his timetable. But the reality is, the truth is that he is working and he is reforming. Philippians 2.13 says that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And for Jacob, God gave him a Laban. For 20 years, he gave him a Laban. And he gave him hardship. And he gave him manure. And he gave him setbacks. And one might read this account and declare, good, that schemer Jacob getting what he deserves. Another may read this account and say, no, his treatment is too harsh. But we have to know that Jacob would not become who he became without Laban and without the reforming grace of God sanding those edges. You see, the same is true for you. God knows exactly how to give his grace to you. He knows how to give you the change you need. He loves you too much to to withhold that grace and to withhold that change. There's this wonderful excerpt in in a book entitled Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof, so and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. It hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. That's a great picture of the reforming grace of God in our lives as he's changing us and molding us and forming us. That's what God's grace does. God's grace reforms us. He crafts us into the people he wants us to be. Well, Laban and Jacob, they will make peace. They'll make a covenant. And Laban fades away in the rearview mirror in the life of Jacob. He becomes but a speck on the horizon. But what appears in front of Jacob now may be even worse. We're about to see that this grace of God not only reforms us, but it also reconciles us. You see, God grants a reconciling grace. God grants a reconciling grace. This is Genesis 32. And this chapter begins with a a delegation. Jacob is sending messengers off to Esau. You remember Esau. Jacob certainly does. 20 years ago, he cheated his twin brother. He took his birthright and his blessing. Genesis recorded his departure to go out and find a wife. This was Jacob departing to initially go out and meet Rachel. 
And then that account records a quiet whisper uttered by Esau. The days of my mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. There's something bold about the confidence of Jacob. It's something that's almost un-Jacob-like in this delegation. We might expect him to, to deceive Esau, to, to sneak by him, to outwit him in some way. James Montgomery Boyce writes of Jacob's conscience. He observed that, that he was bold before Laban because he, he lived uprightly, but here he, he'll become a bit of a coward. He's going to cower before Esau because he knows he treated him un, unjustly. In fact, in Genesis 32, verse 6, the messengers come back. We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Oh no, this can't be good. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He's expecting the worst. He divides his group into two separate camps. Perhaps some would make it out alive. And he prays, verse 11, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. And he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the shore, which is too great to be numbered. And God answers that prayer in a very unexpected way. In verse 24, Jacob is alone, and a man arrives and wrestles with him. This is not Esau. One might think that it would be. They wrestle all night. And as dawn breaks, Jacob refuses to let this man go. I will not go unless you bless me. And the man replies, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And I think we've rightly sensed that there is a showdown coming with Esau. So why this scene? Why is God here wrestling with Jacob? I think that this scene reaffirms the covenant that God made with him. Whatever is to come with Esau, Jacob will live. I think secondly, if we look back to our first point, remember the reforming grace of God, it's going to continue to shape Jacob. God never stops working on us. He never stopped working on Jacob. And lastly, this man's going to deliver a blow to the thigh of Jacob. And this is going to forever cause Jacob to limp. And you see this in verse 31. It almost appears to be a, a, a humbling of Jacob and a maturing of Jacob. We might say that in the Christian life, a humbling is a maturing. And you see in chapter 33 that almost immediately Esau appears. Not for revenge, but to reconcile. Verse 4, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Do you remember how they left one another? The last time their paths crossed, they were near their father's tent. 
Tears were streaming down Esau's face as his father spoke of the stolen blessing. I wonder if the last thing Jacob heard as he walked over that hill behind him in the tent was the scream of his brother. But God has done a work. He's worked in both of their hearts to bring them to a point to reconcile. You know, this morning God gives you that same grace. A grace to reconcile. You have God's favor to make things right where they might be wrong. You know, I think about what we do here each week. We gather to worship the Lord. But how we come here matters to God. Jesus tells us not to bring our offerings, be it money or service or even our voices in song. He says, leave these offerings, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. You could do any Bible study in the, in the New Testament. And it underscores this point, that, that divisions and factions Hard hearts, grudges, they're going to stifle worship. I think about next week. Next week we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus commands us to, quote, do this. We want to obey Christ. We want to gather here to, to take the Lord's Supper. We want to do it together. But how we come matters to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. A man must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Division and disunity, it plagued the church at Corinth. And God calls us, he called them to reconcile. And what God calls us to do, God supplies us the power to do it. He gives us a grace to reconcile with with one another. Perhaps it's face-to-face. Perhaps it's, it's something that's spoken within the body of Christ to another. Perhaps it's within our own hearts. If we can pray, if we can set aside our pride, if we can ask for forgiveness or or if we can forgive, as the case may be, that's 90% of it. But something, something must come first. Because if we're going to talk about reconciliation, we need to talk about Jesus. It begins with Jesus Christ. Each of us must be reconciled to God through Christ. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The Bible verse says, Jesus is fully God. And that he died for your sins and that none of us can have peace with God apart from Jesus. And it goes on in Colossians to say that though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, you were engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, this teaches us that we must repent of sin, we must turn from sin, and we must trust in Jesus. And that when we do that, we are reconciled to God. We're declared holy. And then we then live out the duration of our lives, striving to honor God by living holy lives. 
I invite you this morning to come and be reconciled to God through Jesus if you are not yet. And if you are, rely on that reconciliation to reconcile your relationships. God gives us a reconciling grace. And we saw God gave us a reforming grace. And lastly, we see a, a relentless grace. That God himself possesses a relentless grace. And this comes to us in chapter 34 of Genesis. This is one of the darker corners of Scripture. Every person in this chapter makes bad decisions. It begins bad, it ends worse. God's not mentioned once. We're going to set chapter 34 alongside 35. I think they're meant to be together. And the contrast is going to highlight again this relentless grace God possesses. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to the daughters of the land. Full stop. Dinah explores Canaanite women. Her curiosity leads her to bad people. Bad people hang around other bad people. Verse 2, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Shechem then attempted to woo her. Verse 3, literally, he spoke upon the heart of the girl and even enlisted the help of his father, Hamor. Well, Dinah's family gets word of all of this. Oddly, Jacob is silent about this horrific act. His sons are not. The Bible says they were grieved and they were very angry. And they have something to say. Chapter 34, verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit. Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you. If you will become like us, and that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. This is a setup. You'll soon see how. For now, again, notice the absence of Jacob. In the ancient Near East, the father was aggressively involved in the giving of his daughter for marriage. And notice in this passage also the invitation to intermarry. Intermarriage is going to be a huge problem for the people of God as the Old Testament unfolds. They were, to say it one way, avoid it. Well, the men of the city receive circumcision. Obviously, Hamor and Shechem have influence over that town, and they all go in on this. They receive circumcision. One day passes. Day two passes. The brothers bide their time. According to Jewish traditions, the wounds of circumcision are most tender on the third day. Verse 25, now it came about on the third day when they were in pain 
that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. There's no retaliation, no way to fight back. By the way, the men of the town did nothing to Dinah. Verse 26, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. Well, Dinah is rescued from a brutal kidnapping. Verse 31 will fill that in. Jacob had ten other sons who joined in the looting. Finally, Jacob speaks. His concern, his reputation among the Canaanites. If his appearance is the issue, his sons, probably exasperated, point to the disgrace of the family name done, the harm done by the family of Shechem. And at this point in Genesis, the story is beginning to turn. We're beginning to turn away from Jacob and beginning to turn toward the sons toward these 12 who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. But that presents its own problem, doesn't it? How in the world will the promises of God continue with brothers like this? Murderers, mass murderers, looters, and thieves. Chapter 35. We need a 35 after a 34. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there. Jacob receives grace. God takes him back to Bethel. It's been some time, but when Jacob left to find a wife, this is where he stopped. And this is where he had the vision of a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And this is where God reaffirmed his covenant promises. All of the mess and all of the guilt and all of the sin of chapter 34, God says, we're going back. We're going to move forward. The relentless grace once again seeks to bless his people. How so? Well, in chapter 35, they must bury their idols. In verses 2 and 4, Jacob gathers together these household idols. At least they were the idols that Rachel stole from Laban, no doubt. He buries them near Shechem. Secondly, they must be fruitful and multiply. You and I know this command. It's what God told Adam. It's one reason that God made us. Remember in our message from last Sunday in the park, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And God's grace remains relentless. In verses 11 and 12, he's going to reaffirm to Jacob that promise of land and seed once more. And thirdly, perhaps most of all, they must worship the Lord. This is the heartbeat of the people of God. And if in chapter 34, it seems as though at every corner and every turn, we were bumping up against some kind of evil, in chapter 35, we keep bumping into worship. Verse 1, go to Bethel and make an altar. Verse 3, let's go make an altar to God. Verse 7, Jacob, build an altar at Luz. 
Verse 14, Jacob builds a pillar and pours an offering. This is a right response to the grace of God. And we've explored it a few different ways in the life of Jacob. And I'm sure at times it would not be uncommon for us to even ask, what about sin? This fellow Jacob, he falls short quite often. I mean, why not steal the blessing? Why not a little deception? How about a little revenge? I mean, if God is so gracious, why not sin? That's the question that Paul anticipates. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, he says. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Christians die to sin. Death, it marks a separation. We now live for Christ and we died to sin. We live for God and we die to the flesh. And we die from the pursuit of sin. William Barclay writes, How despicable it would be for a son to consider himself free from sin because he knew his father would forgive him. I would even say further. If we profess faith, but we run after sin, if we take the grace of God and make an expensive grace a cheap grace, are we even children of God? The relentless grace of God is not an occasion to sin. It's a reason not to. It's one more reason to worship God. He's changing us. Again, His grace, it's not with a stern rod, but with the kindness, with the patience, and with the love. It's a reforming, reconciling, relentless grace. And Jacob, (laughs) Jacob's going to need it. Because conflict among his sons is coming. One is going to die, or, or so it seems, only to rise up and become the ruler of a nation. Another will nearly kill his son's daughter, yet rise to become a lion. And then from this one son, way, way off, would come a son filled with grace and with truth. That, however, is another story for another day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the perfect Son. We are so thankful for the grace you've given us in Jesus. And we're thankful for the grace you continue to flood into our lives every day. I pray for us today, Lord, if we struggle to believe the depth of your grace, if we find ourselves refusing your grace, that your Holy Spirit would do a work to soften our hearts, to teach us, to lead us to you. Oh, Father, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.